Okay, anyway, so t- come to the congregation meeting tonight. It's, uh, it's a, it'll be a good time. We haven't had one for a number of years. The last time we had congregation meetings was really about building stuff. And so um, this one will be a little bit different. You'll get to meet some of the leaders. And we're providing dinner. So, you know, come and have some dinner. And it, we're not going to take you all night. It won't be a long time, but um, it'll be a good time of fellowship. So it's at 4.30. We eat at 4.30. Come at 4.30. We have, and we take care of your kids. Um, we... Um, we're not going to have Sunday school for the kids. We're going to, I don't know what we're doing with the kids. We're going to give them some food and they're going to watch Lady and the Tramp while we do business, okay? <laughs> Come on, Lady and the Tramp. Okay, so two dogs fall in love and eat spaghetti or something. I don't know what the theme there is. Today's the 20, uh, 23rd. Let's get to the Word of God. Um, today's the 23rd. I love Pro- Book of Proverbs, so we always have a proverb today. I picked verse 9. Do not speak in the hearing of a fool, for he will despise the wisdom of your words. Okay, that's a good one. Let's pray. God, as we get into um, to this, this, this part of the service where we spend time in your word, we, we trust you, God. We know that your word was given to us. It's holy. It's complete. It's perfect. It's not contradictory. It's here so that we might be changed, Lord, by your spirit, that we might become more like you, that we might understand you and know you and love you. So, Lord, let your work, word do its work in our souls, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What motivates people in life? Think about that. What, what motivates people to do a good job, to, um, to work hard, to invest um, in their own, the growth of their own character? What is it that motivates people? So you, you, maybe you've seen these things that fly around the internet sometimes, but there's, here's a, a, an example that does not work. Here's a, a company memo of policies. Dress code. It's advised that you come to work dressed according to your salary. If we see you wearing Prada shoes and carrying a Gucci bag, we assume you're doing well financially and therefore do not need a raise. (laughs) If you dress poorly, you need to learn to manage your money better so that you may buy nicer clothes and therefore you do not need a raise. If you dress just right, you're right where you need to be and therefore you do not need a raise. (laughs) Sick days. We'll no longer accept a doctor's statement as proof of sickness. If you're able to go to the doctor, you're able to come to work. (laughs) Leave of absence for a medical operation. We will no longer allow this practice. We wish to discourage any thought that you may need an operation. As long as you're employed here, you will need all of whatever you have and should not consider having anything removed. We hired you as you are, and and to have anything removed would certainly make you less than what we bargained for. (laughs) Personal days. Each employee will receive 104 personal days a year. They're called Saturday and Sunday. (laughs) This is a great policy. I think the church staff, this is perfect for us. Toilet use. Entirely too much time is being spent in the toilet, and the future will go to the restroom in alphabetical order. For instance, those whose names begin with A will go from 8 a.m. to 8.05, B from 8.05 to 8.10, and so on. If you're unable to go at your time, you'll need to wait until the day that your turn comes again. There's a strict three-minute limit on use in the stalls. Aren't you kind of scared where this is going to go? Me too. I should have read this before, but I don't know why. Okay. At two minutes and 45 seconds, an alarm will sound, the toilet paper roll will retract, and the stall door will open. At exactly three minutes, a picture will be taken. After your second offense, your picture will be posted on the company bulletin board under the chronic offenders category. If you smile, you'll be sanctioned under the company's mental health policy. (laughs) Death, other than your own. 
There's no, this is no excuse for missing work. There's nothing you can do for them. Every effort should be made to have non-employees attend to the arrangements. In rare cases where an employee involvement is necessary, the funeral should be scheduled in the late afternoon. We'd be glad, glad to allow you to work through your lunch hour so that your work can be done on time. Your own death. This will be an accepted excuse. However, we require two weeks' notice as we feel it's your duty to teach someone else your job. <laughs> Want to work for that company? Maybe some of you do. I don't know. I, I'm not sure that that list would motivate anybody to do anything. I mean, and, you know, if you think about motivation, you can go to just about any bookstore anywhere and find lots of shelves full of books that are motivational books. You know, on this topic, how to get employees to do what you want them to do, or there are seminars on the subject. There's, there are the school teachers are trying to figure out ways to motivate students to apply themselves. I know that the, every teacher I ever faced, it was like a hard task for them, and, and I mean, it's, a, it's, it's an ongoing thing. There's, there are studies out there now, lots of studies that, have, that have, have determined that giving rewards will give kids incentives for how to do their homework. We had one child, um, I won't go into a lot of detail, but we had one child who was too interested in gaming and not enough interest in doing schoolwork except for playing around in school. I see heads nodding. And Lisa and I hatched this plan where, where um, we had this one game, electronic game at home that was of high value to this child. And um, so we went to the, this, his teacher and said, here's the deal, here are time tickets. Time tickets for playing the game at home. He doesn't get to play the home, game at home unless he has tickets to buy the time. You're the distributor of the tickets. And the teacher all of a sudden had lots of leverage. It worked for a while anyway. I'm not even sure, it worked, but it worked. I mean, kids, okay, my sons are both over there mumbling. <laughs> um, but there'll be parents one day, and they'll figure out how, how brilliant and genius that really was. There, there are rewards that, that can, in fact, there were rewards in schools where they've, they've, they've learned that students respond to something as simple as pens and pencils and notepads. You know, rewards, they'll, they'll do their homework. And... You, you have obviously seen in our culture the offering of cash rewards for information leading up to the arrest and conviction, right? Okay. Um, there was a $25 million reward offered for information that led up to, that, that was going to be available for the capture of Osama bin Laden. Um, there are presently, our government offers rewards of, the biggest one I could find online was $25 million. It had to do with terrorism. Our FBI has a 10 most wanted list Nine of the ten, there's $100,000 offered. If you're harboring one, there's 100 k for you right there. <laughs> Turn them in and take the money. Um, so I guess we should get back to the context of why we're talking about motivation. What is it that motivated the Apostle Paul? You know, he did a lot of good stuff. But think about what he faced along the way. He, 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 he suffered heat. He suffered cold. He suffered fatigue. He suffered, you know... Um, shipwreck. He suffered being beaten repeatedly. He was jailed repeatedly. He suffered a lot. Why did he keep it up? What motivated him? And then there are other people, you know, maybe you don't follow some of these names, um, these famous missionaries, I mean, but um, a guy named David Livingstone, who uh, was educated in Hamilton, Scotland. He, be he, got his, he became a medical doctor, and he left what that could provide for him and went to Africa, and he decided to live as a missionary. Why did he do that? 
A guy named Hudson Taylor who uh, started the China Inland Mission, same kind of a thing. He, he left, a guy, another guy named E. Stanley Jones, who was known as the Billy Graham of India, left a lot of comfort and provision to go to these distant places. What, what, what gives these people incentives? Well, the Apostle Paul answers that question for us in the verses that we're going to look at today. Now, we've been in a series talking about heaven. What happens after we die? And uh, so we've been walking through many aspects of that. Last week, we talked about worship in heaven. And uh, this week, we're, we're, we're on that same topic. And we're going to find that Paul answers those questions for us. Why does he do it? Why does he put up with all this challenge and keep pressing forward? And the answer is, in, in simple terms, the judgment seat of Christ. We're going to talk a little bit today about the judgment seat of Christ. In heaven, after we die, we're going to be given rewards based upon what we do in this life. And uh, please don't misunderstand. You do not get into heaven that way by what you do. You get into heaven by faith. But the rewards that you get once you're in heaven have to do with the things that you do on the earth now to serve the Lord. So you, you get into heaven by the finished work of Christ, but you get rewarded once you're there based on the works you've done. So let's get into our text, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 9. Therefore... Now, we've been in this passage earlier in this series, so we already know what's, what's before this. So, but therefore, um, we, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him for or because we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad, knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, but I also trust are well known in your consciences. Now, when I consider these three verses, we're going to see incentives that, that Paul was, was, was cognizant of and motivated him in three areas, three areas that drove Paul, Paul the apostle. And these, these three incentives, these reasons that motivated him, we're going to look at them. And what we'd like to do, what I think we ought to do, is grab those and own them as ourselves. So we're going to look at his ambition to see if it's our ambition, you know, in, in view of who God is and what does, what, what, how that motivates us. What's our goal? What's our ambition? Two, uh, when we consider heaven, what motivates us heavenly? What makes us follow us that passion? And the third, what about on earth? Uh, what motivates us to do things on the earth? So back to verse nine. Um, Therefore, we make it our aim. That's where we're pointing. It's our goal. We make it our aim. And whether present or absent, and here he's talking about whether we're alive or we're dead. Because if I'm alive, I'm walking with Christ. And if, if I die, if you know your scripture, you know to die is gain as you're, you're with Christ. Absent body is present with the Lord. Whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. Now there it is, verse 9, Paul's stated goal for his life. This, this is basically the Apostle Paul's purpose statement. This, this verse, this idea, it just forms this standard to which everything in Paul's life gets filtered. I want you to hear that same verse in the Amplified translation. Um, we are consciously ambitious and we strive earnestly to be well-pleasing to him. Pleasing God was Paul's lifelong passion. It was his ambition. It's, it's just this, this eternal ambition to please Christ. So I got a question, rhetorical question. Don't answer out loud. Do you think that this is commonplace today? Would you say that Paul's 
stated passionate goal this is commonplace, or is it more the exception rather than the rule? I believe it's actually very rare. It's certainly not what the world lives for. It's certainly not the goal of unbelievers to live to please Jesus, okay? But I'm going to take it even a step further than that. I believe that even among most Christians, this passion, this ambition to live with the highest goal, the highest goal is to please Jesus, is rare. It's very rare. It's my opinion. Paul is, so here's some, here's some examples of how rare this, the scripture says that it is. Paul's looking for, at one point, he's looking for a ministry partner, someone to, to come alongside him, and he kind of finds it rare. He says in Philippians 2, For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Jesus or Christ Jesus. Paul is saying, of all these people that I know in all these churches that I go to all the time, I only, basically he says, I can only find one person who thinks like I think and concerning the passion to Jesus. He mentions it, it's Timothy, this is, who has the same goal and the same passion. In our culture, it's kind of common to um, find a single word or uh, a single phrase maybe that will sum up an entire person's life. You know, um, golf, fishing, Running, cars, weightlifting, clothes, <laughs> games. I mean, there are even bumper stickers that you can get that say, I'd rather be fill in the blank, you know. I mean, I, that's their goal. That's their passion. That's what they wish they were doing now and pretty much all the time or it wouldn't be on their car, right? Right? Okay. More than anything else, it's what they love to do. And sometimes people are bold enough, they'll make a statement, you know, my life is music, you know, my life is bicycling. My life is painting or, you know, it, whatever it is that's their stated, that's what their life is about. My question for you is, what's your bumper sticker? If there's one phrase that you're about, what is it? Now, that question is worth you spending some time being honest with yourself over the next week or some period of time. We obviously can't take too much time. But, because, but we do know what that was for the Apostle Paul, what his goal was. And, and he said it not only here, but a lot of places in Scripture. He says it in Philippians 1, for to me, live, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So being with Christ, that's a stated goal. So here's another rhetorical question. I got a couple of these today I'm thinking about. This is, this is what goes on in my study. This is not me questions, asking you questions. This is Terry sits in his study and goes, Terry? And I ask these questions. So I'm sharing, I'm sharing it with you. So I'm pulling you into my misery now, right? Okay. So another question is, do you know why you were made? I mean, why you're here? What purpose? What, do you know what your purpose? What, you know, why are you here? I mean, have you ever heard somebody say, I was made to do this. I was made for this. You've heard something? Okay, but what, what, what is that? What are, you, what are you here for? Revelation 4.11 kind of points us God's view about that. It tells us kind of pretty much exactly. He says, for you, re- for you created all things, and by your will, the, it, here, this is, a, this is, I'll give you the King James, the King James translation says, by your pleasure, they exist and were created. Let me read that to you one more time. For you, this is someone making a statement to the Lamb of God. 
to Jesus, the creator. For you created all things, and by your will or by your pleasure, they exist and were created. The answer is you were made to please God. That's why you were made. That's what Paul says his goal and his aim in life is, to please Jesus. That's his goal. But that concept, living to please Jesus, is the antithesis of what our world presses into you all the time. It does. It's the opposite of what the world tells you you should live for. You know, because you, you live in a world that tells you you should live for yourself. And it tells you that all the time and repeatedly all the time. It tells everybody to live for themselves, right? Here's, here's a slice. I spent some time looking at the models of businesses, advertisements. I'll tell you a couple of these who is doing the advertising. A couple of them I won't. You can probably figure them out, um, kind of like a game. But here's one. This bud's for you. What's in your wallet? L'Oreal? Because I'm worth it. I don't use L'Oreal products. Do I, honey? <laughs> I never know what kind of shampoo's in there because my eyes are closed at that point and I'm just push on the whatever. When I'm not using a bar of soap, whatever it is, okay. Here's Sprite. Obey your thirst. Be all that you can be. What can Brown do for you? Microsoft. Here's one from Microsoft. Where do you want to go today? Did you know Microsoft had that model? Okay, well, I looked them up. Here's another one. It's everywhere you want to be. You recognize these, these commercials? Holiday Inn says, pleasing people the world over. I think they should. If they want me to stay there, they should try and please me. But it's about pleasing me. Again, Reebok. This one sounds like it's right straight out of Scripture. I am what I am. Or else it's Popeye. I'm not quite sure on that one. <laughs> There's a magazine that tells you, acquire what you desire. You see, the message is so consistent. It's so consistent. And, and in the world, we, we live in this world where everything in life pretty much gets measured on this scale of personal pleasure. And that same kind of warped thinking has crept into the church. I don't mean crossroads, I mean the body of Christ. It's crept into, at least in, a, in Western culture, it's crept in. But I would, I would counter and, and tell you this. I don't know who wrote this, this poem, but, it, uh, but it, 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 it answers that. The more you do as you please, the less you will be pleased with what you do. But the more you live to please God, the more you will be pleased with your life. Because that's how we were made. We're fulfilling our design when we live to please God. Which leads me to another question. What made Paul this way? You know, what motivated him and fueled his ambition and his passion? Why is he that way? And he answers this for us. And um, there are two things that for Paul are off into his future that are motivators for him. One is, is I'm going to say, call it his future glory, and another one, his future judgment. Two things motivated everything in Paul's life, his future glory and his future judgment. Okay, let's talk about future glory. Verses 1 through, through 8 of chapter 5. We've spent time in this over the previous weeks. We know that when our earthly house, some translations use the word that actually means tent, which is a temporary dwelling place. It's, 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 it's our, it's our earthly house is our body, okay? It's, when, that when our earthly house, our body, when this body is destroyed, 
We have an eternal house, not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habituation, or habitation, excuse me, which is from heaven. So there he's talking about our future glory. And then the other thing that motivates him is our future judgment, which he calls the judgment seat of Christ. And here we are in verse 10. So he's looking heavenward. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, this verse, this verse 10, is describing a scene that will take place in our future. If you're a Christian, you will be there. Now, if you're not a Christian, you'll be at a different, a different judgment called the Great White Throne Judgment, and uh, I, I'm not talking about that right now. I'll spend a minute on, uh, on that a bit. Um, but notice he says, we must all appear Every one of us. He's writing to believers. We must all appear. And when you appear, it's going to be this time of evaluation and conclusion at this judgment seat of Christ. And then finally, there's going to be a verdict rendered where you're going to receive a reward or lose a reward. That's what's going on at this seat. You're going to receive a a, a reward or or lose a reward because it says that each one may receive. So this is describing this place of, of revelation, this re- revealing, this, and, and some reckoning and receiving things are going to be going on there, this judgment seat of Christ. Now, in the time remaining for our time together today, I want to drill down and, and understand these verses a little bit better, uh, these thoughts, because there's a lot, there's, they're important. Wouldn't you agree? There's a lot writing on, on this. So this term, judgment seat, um, we have two words, judgment seat, but it's actually one word, in the original Greek, and the word there is bematos, bematos. And, or you've heard the word bema, it's a different t- t- tense, but bematos. And it means, it literally means this, this step, or this raised platform. It's, it's that simple. And we're all going to stand before the bematos of Christ, this raised step. The word originally meant the distance covered by one step. And then over time, it became, um, it became known as a raised step. And then over time, that raised step became known as a, as a place of authority, kind of like a platform, a raised form. And then eventually became known or understood to be like the judgment seat of Christ. So that's, that's the etymology on it. So here's the deal. Every town in, um, in, uh, in, in the ancient world had a bematos. They may have called it something different, but they all had one. And from their bematos, speeches were given, Laws would be declared to the people. Verdicts would be handed down. It's a very important place of authority. In fact, four years before Paul had written this letter to the church in Corinth, he had personal experience at the Bematos in that very city. And um, he had been preaching the gospel to the Jews in that city, and they were opposing him, and they blasphemed, and they, were just, just, they didn't like it at all. And so there was a little bit of a riot. And then we see what happens in Acts chapter 2. Um, 18 verse 12, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the bematos, the the judgment seat. So here he is getting firsthand experience um, with what's going on. Now, every Greek citizen sometime in their life had to be a judge at the bematos in their local town. We would consider it like jury duty. And when it was your turn and you were a member of the jury, every member of the jury would be given two bronze discs. One was solid and the other one was hollow. And after the judges or the jury members would hear the case, they would p- place the disc that they would choose into this bronze urn that was on the bematos, 
on the judgment seat. If they considered your case, your, ter- your story to be hollow, didn't ring true, the hollow disc would go on. If they considered it to be solid, if your story was solid and they believed you, you, you see what's going on. It would be placed in this urn, this judgment seat. And that's the idea of the judgment seat of Christ. This, 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 the Bamatos was this place of judgment, but it was also a place. It was a place, but it was also a place of giving out rewards. The first Olympics happened all, over 700 years before Jesus, and um, it was for men only. And there were competitions in foot races and chariot races and javelin throwing and um, um, boxing and um, some wrestling. But that's about it. It was just there weren't, weren't as many sports. But after the competition was completely over, all of the participants would be lined up in front of the bamatos, where they would either, well, they would lose the reward if they didn't perform well, or they would win the reward if they won their competition. And do you know what they got if they won the Olympics? They got a little crown made out of leaves. Leaves. They'd be like wilted and dead later that day or the next day. They would just—it was just—they would perish. This crown that they would get would be would perish, and that's what Paul has in mind when he talks about this analogy in, in 1 Corinthians chapter nine, verses twenty-four and twenty-five, where he says, verse twenty-four: "Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things." Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown. These people running these races you see at the Olympics, their crown's going to perish. It's just fade away. But we, for an imperishable crown, it's all about the motivation here. It's all about working now and serving now to win this, this prize. My favorite thing, for sure, hands down, to watch on TV is the Tour de France. Okay, you can look at me weird if you want. But it's a great competition. A uh, bunch of people go nuts for about three weeks. Um, they're they're top-level athletes. They're kind of weird because they don't do anything but eat, sleep, drink, bicycles, and racing. And they it, it, some call it the race of madness. They um, you know they they go over rugged terrain. They go up crazy mountains. They eat and sleep. Well, they don't sleep, but they eat and they eat on the run. They drink on the run. They're on their bikes. They ride 150 miles every day and they're going over mountains and they do it for three weeks. And they get in crashes and, I mean, it's fun to watch. (laughs) It's fun to watch. Now, it's not too big a deal in the United States, but around the world, other people are like me. They enjoy the, the, the beauty of the scenery and... You know, it's, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's estimated that each year the people that line the race route and watch is between 10 and 12 million people. That's the people that go and pay zero for tickets to watch live competition. It's really a good deal. It's a long ways from here. Um, but you can watch it on TV. In fact, it's broadcast to, um, there are 60 different channels that live broadcast it around the world every day when it's on. It goes to over 190 190. In fact, it is the largest watched annual event on TV every year in the world. It's a big, big, pretty big deal. And these guys now, uh, to be sure, there's a lot of money in it now because there's a lot of sponsors. And, the, and, and if a guy wins, if these they're the winner, this year I think there was 176 competitors that started and one guy wins, right? There are other prizes, uh, other winners too of different things. But there's one overall winner. And yeah, they get some sponsor money. It didn't always, wasn't always that way, what deal. But the real thing they want to win is a jersey. 
a shirt, a yellow jersey. My wife's been being trained. Plus, they get a little stuffed lion that you can only get by winning a stage at the Tour de France. I mean, it's perishable. The shirts go away. They can say, I won the Tour de France. Unless they're Lance Armstrong, then they can't say they won it anymore. <laughs> but all f American fans know that he did win. <laughs> My kids are all going, yeah, okay. They want to get on that. But it's a yellow jersey. It's going to perish. It's going to burn. Paul is talking about this when he says, now they do it to obtain a perishable crown. They do it for this perishable crown, but we serve and work for Christ now for an imperishable crown later. And, and okay, so another question you might have is, okay, well, what's the nature of this judgment? What's going to really be happening at this, at this judgment seat of Christ, this bamatos? Well, first, I want you to understand what it is not. Don't confuse it with what's, what Scripture calls the great white throne judgment that's mentioned in Revelation 20. That's where um, the wicked will be judged and uh, after the millennium, ki millennial kingdom and banished forever. It's, 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 that's a terrible place to be. You do not want to be at that judgment. I'm just telling you, you do not want to be there. If you're a born-again believer, you will not be there. But if you don't know Christ, that's where you'll go. And um, we, you don't want to be there. But anyway, because of this finished work of Christ, believers are never going to have to face that kind of judgment. It's not the white throne judgment. In fact, uh, Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. How much condemnation? None. Zero. Exactly. Exactly right. That scripture goes on, and that's a whole different, I want to teach that whole scripture. But, um, but also remember what Jesus said in John 5. Most assuredly, I say to you, you, he who hears my word, was this Grace's scripture? Pretty close. She was part of it. Um, most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. So the judgment seat of Christ doesn't determine your fate. That's settled by your relationship with Christ. And, and uh, we talk about that other times. And, and, and if, you, if he's your savior, scripture says this. It says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Leave that up there for a moment, if you would, Amy. This is such an important scripture because the world that wants to, to, to believe that if they're good enough, that will get them to, to, to heaven, this scripture says that is just not true. This scripture tells you that salvation is a gift from God. It's not because of works. You will never be able to, to boast and say, I'm a good enough person to get to heaven. That's what the scripture says. It's a gift and it's faith. And um, the Lord doesn't want, listen, here's the thing. If you're good enough, why did Jesus have to die on a cross? And since he knew you needed a cross and for him to die upon it, it's like saying, God, you're wrong. I got this covered. I don't need you. That's That's... That's why it says, lest anyone should boast. So it's not, it's not that judgment. It's not the judgment for your sins or your eternal destiny. Nor is the Bema seat, um, this place of some sort of spiritual competition um, between you and anybody else where you can say, hey, my mansion's bigger than your... No, it's not, there's going to be none of that. There's going to be none of that in heaven. 
But this is an important evaluation reward for you know, whatever you did on, on this earth to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, remember, it's, don't get this confused. We're not saved by our works, uh, but we are saved to do good works, right? Did you get that distinction? We're not saved by our works, but we're saved to do good works. Okay, Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, we're taught throughout the New Testament and um, um, that there will be a reward in heaven and position, you know, and, and, and that will be determined by um, what you do on the earth. Jesus said this in Matthew 6, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. You know, Laying up treasures in heaven, the first time I ever heard that scripture, um, I, I was a fairly new Christian and had not even read very much of the Bible at the time. And Lisa and I were driving through Olympia one day and we were going on the one-way street that goes towards Lacey. And I never can ever keep... I've lived in this community for 50 years and I can still not remember the name of that street. State or fourth or fifth or something. Anyway, headed towards Lacey. And <laughs> we're going to have dinner with some friends and um, we drove, drive past, and here's this woman, young woman with a couple of children, and her tire's flat. It's only flat on the bottom, but anyway. So I looked at her, and we were on our way, and we thought, you know what? I don't know. We, dinner can wait. Let's help this woman. We got out and changed her flat tire. Do you remember that? You don't remember. This is a long time ago. And um, we get there, and we apologize to our friend, Crystal. Crystal, I'm sorry we're late. There was a woman. She needed her tire fixed. Did you know her? No. And, she, and, and Crystal says to me, well, you just stored up treasures in heaven. I said, I have what? She said, the goodness of your heart, you were prompted by the Spirit of God to help someone who needed help, you a stranger. You just stored up treasures in heaven. You just put a deposit into a bank account that's going to pay off in the future. That's an example of storing up treasures in heaven. I don't tell you that now so I can get your praise for that. Don't think good of me in that because you'll steal my, my, my treasure because I'm not doing now in front of men to get praise. I'm using it as a teaching moment. Do you see what I'm saying? When you lay up treasures for heaven, you're doing things now and you don't do it so you get recognition now. It's like when the bag goes by and you say, I'm putting my faith in God. Lord, the tithe is yours. Treasure, ka-ching, goes in heaven. And, um, and there's lots of reasons to uh, put your trust in the Lord, but laying, Jesus saying, don't make your investments on the earth because thieves break in and steal them. The stock market will crash. The laws will change and you'll lose your money. A moth will eat it. Put it in heaven where it's good forever. There's another case where he's talking in Matthew 25. It's the parable of the talents. And um, he's talking about using earthly resources today for, for God's purposes. And uh, Jesus explains that when he says this. He says, well done. He's, he's talking to these different, um, these different guys. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And he says in Revelation 22, this is Jesus talking again. Behold, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. So, and Jesus makes promises on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you know, when you do these things, not seeking your reward today, he says, you'll, you'll be rewarded openly, is the way he describes it. So when, when does this open reward that's going to come from Jesus happen? The answer, it comes at the judgment seat of Christ. 
1 Corinthians 3, there's a passage teaching this same thing. Verse 10, according to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, that's a list of things that last, wood, hay, straw, those are things that don't last. Notice this says, each one's work will become clear for the day, that's capitalized, that's, it's, it's, it's referring to a specific day. This is not talking about daytime versus nighttime. This is talking about a, a specific, I call it a calendar day so you understand what I'm talking about. It's a very specific date. This is the day of the Bema seat. We'll declare it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So it's barely. This is this final assessment of what Christians do from the time they're saved till the time that they get to heaven. Romans 14 um, should actually, you know, help. Here's another place. By the way, Romans 14 should end all kinds of backbiting, and, and not that there's a lot of backbiting going on here, but it should, uh, anything that's being said between brothers and sisters in the Lord, you know, he, 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 but Paul's talking, he says, but why do you judge your brother, or why do you show contempt for your brother? He's talking about relationships in the, Christ, in, in the body of Christ. For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Did you know that God has a record? of everything done on the earth, and it's a saved-up record. Um, and this record is kept of every person who's saved and unsaved. There's this little passage tucked away in this, this last little tiny book in the Old Testament called Malachi in uh, chapter 3, verse 16, and it mentions, it says, a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. A book of remembrance. So here's a question. When's all this going to happen? When is this uh, judgment going to take place? Answer, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I have an idea, but I don't know. I'm going to tell you what some people say, and um, you can... If you, know, if, if you think you know and you pick the wrong one, it, it's, gonna change, it, it's not going to change to the day you picked. So, it, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm not dogmatic about this, but I'm going to tell you what different dates that people say... The point is that you know that it will happen at some time. Okay, some people say that this happens immediately as you die. You leave your body, you're present with the Lord, and you immediately are judged and rewarded right then. Okay, that's what some people say. Some people say it happens between your death and the time that the Lord comes um, in the rapture, what we call the rapture. Um, some people say it comes between the rapture and the second coming of Christ. I'm getting into end time stuff that I'm not going to detail with you today. Other people believe that it comes after the second coming and after the millennial. I mean, there's all kinds of, and, and I think there are some hints in some of the passages we read today, and there are more hints if you want to look into this in uh, Daniel chapter 12. I'm not going to go there today. Um, so I'm, not, I'm going to say to you, I don't know when. I have my own ideas. Look it up. It's good for you to dig sometimes. Okay, so let's go back and finish our text passage, and that's verse 11. 
And um, we, I've included this, this verse in our three verses today because it starts off by saying, knowing therefore, which connects it to the previous verses. And he, 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 it, it tells us about Paul's ambition, his motivation, you know, and, um, and these things should be our ambition. These should be our motivation. Knowing therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. What does that mean? Well, I'm going to tell you what most people say that it means, okay? Um, most people say that phrase, terror of the Lord, should not be there. They say it should say fear of the Lord. The word actually in the original Greek is phobos. We get our word phobia from that phobos. And, and um, so fear is a reasonable translation um, they, they, they say it should read fear of the Lord as in reverential awe, okay? Reser, re, reverential awe of the Lord. And that should motivate a believer, and it should. And so that's, that's an acceptable exp, explanation of the passage. I think that one works. It could also mean that, it could mean this, that knowing that you're going to be rewarded, or you could lose a reward, depending on what we did, what we do now. Um, so we should persuade as many um, Christians as we can to live the right way. Could mean that. It could also mean um, simply that it's written to save Christians from arriving at that moment and saying to themselves, why did I waste my time on all of these meaningless things, these meaningless pursuits? Why didn't I focus on things that would have paid off today? It could mean that too. I think that's possible. And then there's also the possibility that the word translated terror is correct. The word terror here is a correct translation of phobia, phobos. It, it is, literally means terror as well. Now, it's not politically correct to use a word that scares us like that. I, I'm concerned how you feel, but I'm not as concerned about how you feel about being politically correct as I am about translating what the Word of God actually says here. You can talk to me after church if that's an issue, okay? I mean, I, I don't mean to have a heart that's, that's cold, but I've got to tell you, when I stand here, I'm not going to soften this. And the word terror is an accurate translation of this word here. Okay, so um, this, it, it, it's, this word phobos, the word phobos can mean anything from generalized fear to anxiety and panic. It can mean terror. So it, he could have had that in mind. So yes, we're going to be judged, we're going to be in glory, and we're going to be rewarded, but there's more to it than just us right? And they're referenced in this. So I want to share another scripture with you that'll kind of help bring this one into a little better focus. First Peter 4, verses 17 and 18. I think it helps us put this together. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved... Where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? In other words, the, the bematos is going to be awesome for us. You're going to be in glory. It, 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 it's going to be awesome for us. But the alternative will be an absolute terror, an absolute terror for people who don't know Christ. And that should motivate us to persuade as many unbelievers as possible 
about the love and the salvation available to them in Christ. It really should. Either interpretation that we've, I've listed, either any of those interpretations work because they're all true. And every person ever born will stand before the Lord for something or another at some time or another. Christians, when you die, you're, you're going to go to heaven. You're not going to go somewhere and burn off your sins. Okay? When you, you're you're going to go directly to heaven. But until that day comes, you have a task. This, this scripture tells us that our task is to persuade people. Um, there's a Puritan named Thomas Guthrie, and he, he used to say it like this. Heaven will be a time for enjoyment. This earth is the time for employment. Isn't that kind of what Jesus said too? Jesus said, work while it is yet day, for the night comes when no man can work. There's another missionary whose name was C.T. Studd, who he put it this way, only one life will soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will last. What would happen if we filtered all of our hobbies and um, our interests and our passions and our ambitions through the single grid, am I pleasing Christ? Why should that matter? Well, because of the future glory that's in, your tri- in the path you're headed on if you're a Christian and this future evaluation called the judgment seat of Christ because every believer for you know, for every believer, today will determine our reward or lack thereof. That's why knowing the, the terror of the Lord, we always want to persuade men and women. And for some of you today, you may not be walking with God at all. You, you may not have any relationship with Jesus at all. You may be living totally for yourself but something drew you here today. You think it was because somebody invited you, maybe, but down in your soul, there are these questions. There's got to be more to life than this. There's, there's, there's got to be something else. There's got to be a way and a place for me to feel like I am right with my creator, with meaning and direction. And the answer to that is, yeah, yeah, there is something more. And, and it's a, the step that will take you there is repentance. Repentance where you are willing to turn from sin, a life focused on yourself, and turn your life over to the Savior, to Christ. He's the only one that can get you to heaven. And I suggest you make that decision today, best decision you'll ever make. And it's an eternal consequence decision. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that... um,